Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Voters across the region and political spectrum can agree on one thing. They care about immigration. I think it resonates with people across the board because everyone's concerned with their own quality of living. On the other hand, we're also aware of community. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. A new poll of New Hampshire voters finds the immigration policies they care about largely don't affect them. And we'll hear from a historian who says U.S. cities owe their revitalization to Latino immigrants. It is only because of immigration that we are sort of kept out of the demographic workforce death spiral that countries like Japan are in. Plus, the immigrant dream to own a triple-decker used to be easier. The usage of what we consider kind of iconic triple-deckers and double-deckers has changed dramatically. It's next. Next is produced at Connecticut Public Radio and is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm Shannon Dooling, reporter at WBUR in Boston, and your guest host today. Thanks for joining us. Regardless of political affiliation, voters in and around greater Boston and southern New Hampshire agree they're paying attention to immigration during the run-up to 2020. New poll results from WBUR and the Mass Inc. polling group show likely New Hampshire voters have strong opinions about immigration policy, even though it's had little impact on them personally. On a cold, rainy day in downtown Manchester, New Hampshire, people scurry back and forth between offices and cafes, ducking under umbrellas. Manchester is the largest and one of the more diverse cities in a state that is 90% white, with only about 6% of its population born outside of the U.S. These are important numbers to keep in mind when we think about how the topic of immigration is perceived by voters in New Hampshire. Christopher Tallon says he's lived in Manchester for six years now, after serving in the U.S. military. Though he calls himself a political he understands why immigration is an important topic to voters. I think it resonates with people across the board because everyone's concerned with their own quality of living. On the other hand, we're also aware of community. The WBUR poll drills down deeper, asking likely primary voters how immigration has affected them personally, as well as the region and the country. Most Republican and Democratic voters in New Hampshire say they've felt no direct impact from immigration, and specifically that it's had no effect on either their family or their town. But Steve Cazella, president of the Massing Polling Group, says lack of personal experience doesn't stop voters from forming opinions about how immigration impacts the country. And we found that people had more of a view of what the impacts were the further away from themselves you got. And that's where you really saw in, I think, the starkest relief, the difference between Democrats and Republicans. Half of Republican primary voters polled said immigration negatively affects the country. Half of the Democratic voters said the exact opposite. Immigration is good for the country. 
Across both primaries, the poll found men take a slightly harder line on immigration than women. Same for wealthier voters and voters with a high school education. Over at the Mall of New Hampshire, Christmas carols serenade shoppers and families line up for pictures with Santa. Manchester resident Bill Hicks is taking a break from shopping with his wife and adult daughter. Hicks, who's wearing a Navy veteran hat and considers himself an independent, shakes his head no when asked if immigration policies have affected him or his family. And yet, he's still quick with an answer about where he stands on immigration. Come in the right way, that's the way they should come in. They're coming into this country for a free ride, and they shouldn't have a free ride, I think. Even still, Hicks says he doesn't feel the president's immigration policies have made the country any safer. This puts him in line with Democratic primary voters. In fact, only 10 percent of Dems said they feel safer as a result of Trump's immigration policies. Most Republican voters, 55 percent, said the U.S. is more secure because of the Trump administration's tougher immigration policies. Of course, poll results only go so far in helping us understand what motivates a voter's stance on a complicated topic like immigration. Hicks's daughter, 24-year-old Courtney Rogers, says she's progressive on most issues, including immigration. She says she's learned a lot from her best friend, who is the daughter of refugees. I believe in gray areas and I kind of like live in gray areas. And I don't think that immigration can be as black and white as the current administration makes it. I think that we've villainized these people for no reason. Um, and that that really breaks my heart. About four out of five Democratic voters feel the U.S. has a responsibility to accept refugees fleeing war, persecution or natural disasters. Only about a third of Republican voters feel that way, and more feel the U.S. has no responsibility. Primary voters have less than two months to decide which candidates' immigration policies they support, even if those policies ultimately aren't felt in New Hampshire. We heard from Steve Cazella in that piece. He's the president of Mass Inc. Polling Group, which conducts polls for WBUR. And Steve joins us now to break down some of the other findings. Hi, Steve. Welcome to Next. Glad to be here. So I actually want to start with a poll from back in September when WBUR asked voters for input on what we sort of called a citizen's agenda, right? The idea being we wanted to hear directly from voters about which issues mean the most to them and what they're paying attention to. Can you kind of set the stage for us, walk us through the big takeaways from that citizen's agenda poll? Within sort of the greater Boston region, so extending into southern New Hampshire and around most of eastern Massachusetts, we found immigration was one of the top issues, particularly for Republicans, but really for really sort of across party lines. Um, So then the idea is you come back to those issues and you cover them again, sort of as the campaign unfolds. Okay, right. And so based on that finding, we dug in deeper into the immigration topic with this poll. And we heard from some New Hampshire voters in the piece that we just listened to. Um, Many people I spoke with, regardless of political party, do not feel like the president's immigration policies have made the country safer. Um, Did that pan out in the poll? And and what else um, stood out to you when it came to immigration? 
Yeah, so the poll was uh, was actually two polls. It was one of Democratic primary voters in the New Hampshire primary, and one was of Republican primary voters. So sort of setting the two side by side, we got a pretty interesting view of what the two ends of the spectrum think with some voters in the middle. Um, and looking across the two polls, we found that that on the Democratic side, not surprisingly, very few, only 10% said that they thought that the Trump administration's immigration policies had made, the, made America safer. But what was interesting is that on the other side, Republicans weren't unanimous on the other side. So they're only just over half. So 55% said that they thought that the Trump administration's policies had made made the country safer. So that that's sort of emblematic of something we found in some other questions in the poll, too, where Democrats are feel strongly in one direction and Republicans tilt in the other direction. But the unanimity that Democrats are feeling is not quite there. Okay, okay. And so what does this poll tell you then about how New Hampshire voters are uh, maybe processing the immigration policies put forth by the Trump administration? Do you think there's a a political price um, to be paid by the Trump administration for the, the sort of hard line it's taking? Well, I think we often hear it pitched as sort of a base mobilization strategy, you know, so that the policy is to excite uh, Donald Trump's base or the Republican base. Um, but what we see in this poll is that even among Republican primary voters, so the ones that are the base, we're only seeing about, you know, two thirds or so say that they approve of the way the Trump administration's treated people crossing the border, about the same number approve of the way Trump has treated undocumented immigrants here in the United States. But then you go over to the Democratic side, and there you see about 80% say that they disapprove. In other words, the disapproval on the Democratic side is more widespread than the approval on the Republican side. Got it. So it'll, I guess, remain to be seen whether the opposition from Democratic voters on the immigration policies, you know, how that sort of faces the the really sort of pale uh, support, I guess, from the Republican uh, voters. Right. You see, the, I think you can judge from the actions of the administration that they do believe politically that this is good for them. You know, you look at sort of the closing argument going back to the 2018 midterms. A lot of it was about, you know, the caravans and, you know, really sort of um, confrontational and violent imagery of immigration. So they believe this is good for them. But, you know, the 2018 midterms were, you know, a Democratic wave. So I don't know that the evidence is really there that that worked. Um, But we also really haven't seen a dramatic change of course. Um, So it wouldn't surprise me at all to to see the same strategy sort of play out in 2020. Well, we ask voters about more than just immigration on this most recent poll, right? Impeachment in particular. What did you see sort of big picture on that topic? Right. So this was this poll was taken sort of in the crescendo to when the articles of impeachment were actually announced. Um, and again, we looked at both the Democratic and Republican primary voters and saw a lot of polarization there, I think, to, to nobody's surprise. Um, we saw, you know, when you look at approval of the of conducting the inquiry in the first place, 80 percent approve on the Democratic side, about the same number disapprove on the Republican side. Um, one interesting thing is that we see about a third on each side saying they could change their mind. You know, I don't, I think sometimes voters probably overestimate the eventuality that they Mm -hmm. will change their mind. Mm -hmm. But there's about a third that are at least retaining that as an option. Um, And that is one thing to watch uh, as we go into the into the Senate portion. Right. Well, obviously, we'll be we'll be keeping our eyes on how all of this develops in the run up into 2020. Steve Cazella is president of Mass Inc. Polling Group, which conducts polls for WBUR. Steve, thanks for joining us on Next. Glad to be here.
Last month, Angela Okafor made history in the city of Bangor, Maine. She's believed to be the first immigrant and person of color elected to city council there. In her journey to elected office, Okafor navigated numerous barriers to making a living in Maine. Now she's helping support other immigrants in an overwhelmingly white area of the state. Maine Public Radio's Robbie Feinberg has her story. Angela Okafor's small shop called Tropical Tastes and Styles is a bit hidden behind a music store along Harlow Street in downtown Bangor. Yeah, but we're going to tamper with a little bit of it because we don't have a ton. On a recent afternoon, Okafor is braiding a hair weave for a local woman sitting near the front window. Nearby, Okafor's daughter zooms on a razor scooter through shelves of international food. Racks of clothing, all for sale, line the wall. And near the back is a small law office that Okafor also operates. While it can be busy, she says it's become a place that immigrants seek out for food and connection. To me, this is more than just a business, like I said. This is more of a community. If you look over there, you see, you know, a collection of winter clothing that I collect. And um, for me, this is, you know, I grew up struggling. I struggled a lot growing up. So, um... Right now, and I feel privileged. I feel I'm very religious. I feel um, blessed. A shop like this didn't exist in Bangor when Okafor and her husband moved here about a dozen years ago. They grew up in Nigeria and emigrated to the city on a work visa. The move was hard, Okafor says. Accents and language barriers made it tough to communicate. And she says as one of few immigrants in a new, very white region of the state, people put up walls that made it tough to feel comfortable. Being, especially like me, you know, coming from a way, not seeing people like myself and, you know, trying to, and people are like still kind of scoping at you like, who is that one? Like, you know, are we even safe around, you know? And just as big of a challenge, says Okafor, was overcoming barriers to work. She had already earned a law degree in her home country, but she says she had to pass the bar exam in New York because of difficulties transferring her credentials in Maine. And even when she finally did get admitted, Okafor says it was nearly impossible to get her foot in the door. She applied to all kinds of jobs in the legal field, but says she was either told she was overqualified or needed, quote, Maine experience. It's a struggle for many immigrants, she says. Frustration, being frustrating is beyond the description. I'm free. I'm, I, I feel free to talk this now because I am my own employer. But imagine a lot of other people who go through that but cannot speak up. And yet we are here and we are talking about workforce shortage. Eventually, fed up with the job search, Okafor launched her own practice, specializing in immigration. She got help from her church, which let her use a spare office. So I would go in there and consult. And I can take my papers and go wherever and work on. I could work at the library. I could come here and work on my, my case. I could work at, you know, anywhere I saw myself. I could be, uh, there was a time I drove down to Portland. I consulted in my car, you know. So I was just doing anything I could, just, you know. It was a lot of work, but Okafor says she was prepared to do more. While Bangor's immigrant population has grown in recent years, it's still tiny compared to a city like Portland or Boston. And at one point, Okafor noticed that many immigrants were leaving the Bangor area for other cities because they missed being able to find foods or other goods from their home countries. And I'm like, how can I actually do this so that, you know, people will stop moving? Because I really didn't like that they were moving away, you know? So the thoughts came, what if I can get food? That Because I know food is a big thing. 
We have tons of things. This so uh, about three years ago, Okafor decided she would do something about it. She opened Tropical Tastes, carrying foods from across the world. And as demand for certain goods and services has expanded, so has her business. She even taught herself hair weaving and African braiding after hearing that some local women were driving hours for those services. Regular customer Emmanuel Asari says the shop has helped him feel more comfortable in a city where he often felt out of place. Asari moved to Bangor about three years ago. I felt like I was somewhere different because of color. You see, you wouldn't see a whole lot of black people around. So, But Asari says when he visits the shop and picks up meat or fufu, a West African dish, he feels more at home. Sometimes you just want to feel the home things the whole of Bangor this is the only place you'll feel like there is a store that you can go in that has what you've what you've been buying way back in Africa or something like that or where you have a lot of African community sometimes people come in here initially they are scared and Okafor says over time the shop became more than just a store it also earned a reputation as a trusted place for immigrants seeking assistance or services or connections to others in the community. They're like, you know, thank you, thank you, you know, is this person connected me or, you know, the other person connected or the community I connected them to is like, oh, thank you for, you know, and it's it's really very refreshing. And like I said, it did not cost me a dime. That is the beauty of it. In her new role as city councillor, Okafor says she hopes to rely on her experience as an immigrant and business owner who spent years navigating a complicated system. Bangor City Council Chair Claire Davitt says that perspective will be important as the city takes up major issues such as transit and housing over the next few years. And then to have her knowledge of law and as a bit small business owner, that representation matters so much, um, especially as we are losing workforce and trying to rebuild that. Okafor says she wants to focus her energies on bolstering that workforce and on improving public transportation, which she says can make the city more accessible for working families. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Robbie Feinberg. Coming up, how Hispanic immigrants helped revitalize American cities over the past 50 years. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate change and the evolving clean energy economy. Support also comes from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York. When we look at the rapid growth of many U.S. cities today, it's hard to believe that in the 1950s, urban planners and city officials were not so optimistic about the future. At that time, cities started losing population for the first time in history. But over the last few decades, cities have been bouncing back in a big way. The creative class usually gets the credit for this revitalization. They're the intellectuals, the writers, and artists. But Andrew Sandoval Strauss argues that an influx of Hispanic immigrants had an even greater impact on U.S. cities. He's a historian, a professor at Penn State University, and author of the new book, Barrio America, How Latino Immigrants Saved the American City. Andrew, welcome to Next. Thanks for having me. 
Well, I'm really excited about this conversation. So let's let's kind of dive right in. Um, we're going to start in the, the 50s and the 60s, uh, when cities like New York and Chicago and Philly and Boston, even Worcester, Massachusetts here, were at an all-time peak in terms of population and industry. But then that started to change. Can you tell us a little bit about what some of those impetus were? Yeah, there were two main reasons for the uh, sudden reversal in fortune of American cities. One was simply racism, and the other was, broadly speaking, deindustrialization. Um, the race issue was just the fact that with the uh, civil rights movement coming into a more active phase in the 1950s and 1960s, um, the segregation of cities, sometimes by law, sometimes by custom, uh, began to disintegrate. And African-American families wanted to move into neighborhoods with better housing and better schools for their families. Unfortunately, there were a lot of white Americans who, given the choice of staying in their neighborhoods with African-American neighbors uh, or abandoning them, chose the latter. Mm. The other thing that happened more or less at the same time was that a lot of large corporations and small corporations began to see that they could pay lower labor costs if they moved their operations to places where unions weren't quite so strong. Mm. Sometimes this meant suburbia. Sometimes this meant uh, to rural areas, sometimes to the south, uh, and sometimes out of the country. So between those two factors, a lot of people and a lot of jobs left cities. We, we commonly hear um, that first phenomenon referred to as the, the sort of white flight, right? Of, exactly. Of, right. And so, so we're talking about predominantly white homeowners in, in these urban communities, these city centers. Um, they would have had a lot more difficulty leaving uh, the cities if they couldn't find anyone to buy their homes, right? How did that all play out? Well, in some neighborhoods where um, people were moving out, uh, they were willing to sell to African-Americans, and there were panic peddlers. There were sort of real estate operators who scared white people into selling low and then turned around and sold those same houses uh, at a far greater price uh, to black people. Um, but as that sort of gradually played out, there were a lot more white people moving uh, out uh, than there were available people to buy their homes. And had Latinos not arrived, you would have seen a lot more large-scale abandonment because, indeed, the worst-case scenario for a landlord or a property owner is not to be able to sell or rent your house. And really, it's these newcomers, uh, among other immigrants, I should say, um, that created a market for real estate where none had existed for some time. Right, right. And I'm thinking of this one uh, statement in the book. You say, the millions of Mexicans and other Latin Americans who migrated to the United States showed up just when the nation's cities needed them most. What, what do you mean by that? Is that sort of this confluence of a few factors we're talking about here? Well, basically, before the arrival of all these migrants and immigrants, there was nobody new. There were no new populations actually moving into cities. So that's why I suggest that you know, if not for the arrival of about 25 million Latino and Latina migrants, a lot more of America would look like those abandoned parts of Detroit or Youngstown or Gary that we see in those books of you know ruins photography. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, let's let's talk more about the the revitalization. Essentially, one of the thesis statements you're making in this book is that Latin American immigrants, um, not necessarily just the creative class, um, but Latin American immigrants made the strongest contributions toward revitalizing urban areas. And I wonder if you can kind of put us in the context of some of the policies and the economic realities uh, that were attracting um, Hispanic immigrants to some of the cities. Remember that as uh, white people primarily left the city, uh, the workforce of many municipalities just fell off. It had to be somebody there to do the actual work. 
Uh, and as some jobs moved to the suburbs, um, many other jobs were simply left undone. So part of it was employment opportunities in everything from construction to childcare to restaurant service to retail sales. So uh, walk us through how this played out in um, some of our sort of traditional mill cities here in New England. Uh, Boston obviously is undergoing a renaissance of its own right now. I'm also thinking about Lawrence, Massachusetts. How did some of these patterns play out in cities in New England? Well, I think the first thing to remember is that remarkably, even though New England is not thought of as sort of a, a major Latino area, Today, if you look at the 10 most populous cities in New England, uh, half of them have populations that are one-third or more Latino, and nine out of 10 of them have populations that are 20% or more Latino. Mm. The way this played out, you have cities losing population outright for about the next 30 years. So, for example, Boston loses 30% of its population between 1950 and 1980. Starting in the 1970s, you see the arrival of people from uh, Puerto Rico, the Dominican Republic, Mexico, and then a little bit later, El Salvador, Guatemala, um, and they begin to revive the fortunes of the city, partially by just repopulating neighborhoods, um, partially by, again, sort of uh, becoming the new workforce mm-hmm. for for industry. So, for example, and this is somebody else's research, but Lana Barber, uh, professor at the uh, State University of New York, shows that in Lawrence, um, there were a large number of factories that sort of switched from a mainly white uh, and departing labor force to a heavily Puerto Rican and Dominican labor force. Uh, I have found in other cities uh, that quite often factories that were going to simply offshore themselves or close down or move away um, because of the low wages they could pay, Latino newcomers were able to stay not just open, but in place. So the idea that that somehow Latinos are are responsible for the departure of industry is the opposite of the truth. Often they were what uh, uh, sort of enabled employers to stay in U.S. cities and in the United States generally. Right, right. Well, uh, you mentioned Lawrence. I'm also thinking of other, you know, in New England, we refer to them as gateway cities, right? These old mill cities that are uh, trying to reinvent themselves. But, you know, in the late 18th century, early 19th century, they were mostly filled with European immigrants um, who were working in the the, the paper mills and the, the fiber mills. Um, and now, as you just mentioned, um, we are seeing a different pattern pattern of, of immigrant communities. It, it seems that that coincides with sort of new labor trends. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it is only because of immigration that we are sort of kept out of the sort of demographic workforce death spiral that countries like Japan are in, where they cannot sort of replace their workers enough to keep their their equivalent of social security and other social programs going. Um, by the same token, right, in this country, uh, you can say that uh, the entire future of the workforce is one that's made possible by newcomers. Okay, well, let's talk about immigration policy in this whole this whole context. Uh, 1965, the U.S. Immigration and Nationality Act was signed into law. Uh, how did this new law compare with, with prior immigration policy? Well, the Immigration Act of 1965 was a terrific law with one major flaw, which we'll get back to. But it was terrific because it put an end to the outrageously prejudiced uh, quotas of the 1924 National Origins Act. Now, that was an act that had been passed in the wake of the arrival of many immigrants from places like Italy and Poland and Bohemia, many of whom were Catholic, and of the arrival of a large number of Jewish immigrants from Central and Eastern Europe. The Anglo-Protestant majority of Americans decided that, oh, they weren't going to have this, and they passed this law, making it extremely difficult for all of those groups of people to immigrate legally. 
That law also reinforced earlier restrictions that made it virtually impossible for people from Asia, Africa, and the Middle East to come legally to America. Now, again, to have eliminated those and opened uh, the sort of promise of the United States to people from all around the world was a great thing. The one problem with it was that because of sort of an extortion uh, by a number of segregationist Southern senators, uh, they insisted that there, for the first time in American history, that there be limitations put on migration across the Americas. Um, they were concerned mm. that essentially brown people from Latin America and black people from the Caribbean would start to come in larger numbers to the U.S. And so they forced Lyndon Johnson and Congress uh, through bureaucratic uh, obstruction um, to include these limitations. And what that did was that rendered long standing patterns of migration across the Americas suddenly illegal. So that put a lot of sort of stigma of illegality on migrants from Latin America. And what are some, can you kind of remind us of, of some of the patterns of migration that were already going on in the Americas, you know, specifically, or I guess most prevalently from um, Mexico into communities along the southern border? Absolutely. Um, remember that from about the 1880s or 1890s, a lot of industrial pursuits on the southern border were absolutely dependent upon Mexican labor. From the 19-teens all the way through to the present, the agricultural economy of the United States would simply be impossible without migrant labor. In fact, that's why there were no limitations on Latin American migration, because the growers in California said, like, listen, agriculture will collapse without them, so you can't do that. Okay. And so then, you know, we're going to fast forward several decades here, but how did this 1965 immigration policy set us up uh, in terms of where we're at today, in terms of migration um, and and immigration within the context of your sort of larger thesis here about, you know, urban renewal and the, the revitalization of cities. Sure. Well, I mean, I th- think one of the points I try to make in the book is that we focus a lot on the 1965 Immigration Act, um, but often what was more important was what was happening in the home countries of people who came here. So, for example, in the case of Mexico, um, the 1965 Act made it harder for people to come here. But at the same time, starting in the same year, 1965, there was a substantial agricultural crisis in Mexico uh, that led to a lot of widespread malnutrition and even starvation. And that sends a significant number of people to the United States looking for work. Because again, if your children are starving, you're going to try to find jobs. But again, uh, the happy accident that worked out was that America desperately needed more people uh, beginning a couple of decades ago and in the cities about three or four decades ago uh, in a way that it, it worked out well for everybody involved. So we hear from from President Trump this narrative uh, that that counters, or I would say, is at odds with the narrative you present in your book here about Hispanic immigrants, where the president focuses on um, what he re- refers to as violent criminals, who you know he he would say need to be turned away at the border or or deported. Uh, how does your book and your research challenge that narrative? Well, uh, people who claim that immigrants are a criminal problem are simply wrong. If you look at the FBI data from decades back, and this is the FBI under Republican and Democratic uh, administrations, uh, they have clearly demonstrated that foreign-born people 
commit crimes at a considerably lower rate than American-born people. I should say that this is not sort of a matter of partisan belief. Uh, Rupert Mur- Murdoch himself, the chairman of Fox News, tweeted out a few years ago that, no, it's simply not true that immigrants commit more crimes. Okay, well, this is an absolutely fascinating read um, from Andrew Sandoval Strauss. He's a historian and author of the new book, Barrio America, How Latino Immigrants Saved the American City. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us on Next. Thank you so much. After the break, how one reliable path to homeownership for immigrants is changing. Plus, an art exhibit confronts migrant displacement and the search for a new home. I'm Shannon Dooling. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate and clean energy. For generations, the story of the New England triple-decker home was pretty simple. You come to this country as an immigrant, rent one unit of a three-decker apartment, save up your money, and buy your own triple-decker. Then, when the time is right, you pass on the home and that generational wealth to your children. But Alex Nunes and Ana Gonzalez say today the triple-decker narrative is a lot more complicated. They're hosts of the public radio's podcast, Mosaic, about the American immigrant experience. Alphonse Mupenzi is a refugee from the Congo. About a decade ago, violence forces him to flee his home country with his wife and three young kids. They make it to Uganda and spend five long years there, waiting to be permanently resettled. Then, in 2016, they get very good news. They're being resettled as refugees in America, in a city called Providence, Rhode Island. I, I was excited. I was excited as a refugee. And our hope was to be where, to be safe. So I was excited. Everything was like a dream. Yes. When Alphonse and his wife and kids arrive in Rhode Island, they get help from Dorcas International and the Central Congregational Church in Providence. And they quickly get put up in their first apartment. The building is totally unfamiliar. They're living on the third floor, and two apartment units are below them. It's a New England triple-decker. And it catches Alfonso's attention. I used to ask my landlord, so he's a Spanish guy, he's a good guy. I used to chat with him. How, how comes this? Until the end, he said, why don't you buy this house? I was even one year. You know, that, then that's how I started getting that idea. Yeah, that's cool. Alphonse doesn't have the money to buy the triple-decker, but those conversations get him thinking and dreaming. Like thousands and thousands of immigrants before him, Alphonse's goal is now to one day buy a multifamily home. In my culture, if you have a home, you have a country. If you don't have a home, you are moving. Today you are here, tomorrow you are on the other side too. You are like... In French, we say nomad. You are a nomad, so that's number one. Number two is, I have a kid. I just want to give them stability, to be stable. Number three is, that is kind of business for income, to earn more. Yeah. 
New England triple-deckers started going up in big numbers about 150 years ago, housing waves of immigrants from places like Italy, Portugal, Canada, and Eastern Europe. And today, they are still really important to immigrants in this region. A three-family home is often the first place an immigrant family lands when they get to Rhode Island or Massachusetts or other New England states. But the role of the triple-decker isn't what it used to be. Nowadays, a lot of other people besides immigrants want to own triple-deckers. And even more people want to rent three-decker apartments. The usage of what we consider kind of iconic triple-deckers and double-deckers has changed dramatically. This is Brenda Clement. She's the executive director of Housing Works RI. It's a research and advocacy group based at Roger Williams University. She says triple-decker home prices have more than doubled since the Great Recession, and the reason boils down to pretty basic math. Lots of people want them, but the number of triple-deckers is limited, and we don't make new ones like we used to. Because we just have simply not been producing enough affordable housing over the past 10, 20 years in Rhode Island, uh, we see more and more pressure on that rental stock. Supply is limited, demand is steady and growing, and um, price goes up. I mean, basic economics 101. The cities in Rhode Island with the most triple-deckers are Providence, Pawtucket, Central Falls, Woonsocket, and Newport. And each community faces its own set of challenges when it comes to triple-deckers. In Providence, colleges like Brown, RISD, Johnson & Wales, and Providence College don't have the space they need to house all of their students. So many of them, like me go looking for triple-decker apartments to rent off campus. My first apartment was on Power Street as the first floor of a triple-decker. Yeah, so developers in places like the east side of Providence are also in the mix, too, buying up three-deckers, gutting them, and turning them into higher-priced condos in gentrified neighborhoods. Then there are investors who want to make money on short-term renters. In Newport, buying a triple-decker is harder because people with money want them so they can rent out the units to the Airbnb crowd in the summer months. And anywhere you find triple-deckers, you also find homes with lots of problems. So many of them are old and deteriorating. They're not safe places to live, and many immigrants don't have the money or access to loans to fix them up. There may be lead, there may be asbestos, there may be other uh, environmental challenges in those buildings that make them not good investments um, for a young family or somebody who's kind of wanting to buy their first home to develop some equity. Add all this up, and the classic narrative about the immigrant in the triple-decker home starts to look less and less relevant, or at least under threat. Triple-deckers are in flux. This is Mark Levitt. He's a filmmaker currently working on a documentary titled Triple Decker, A New England Love Story. The Triple Decker now, like most housing, is a commodity. It's not about the sentiment of the place. It's not about finding a place where you know you're going to live a long time for many people. Now you have international money with lots of cash to spend on transforming the triple-decker into simply another way to make money in a portfolio of lots of money. Mark says the current trend has been emerging over generations. The children and grandchildren of immigrants who moved into triple-deckers in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s moved out in vast numbers decades ago. They didn't want to work in urban factories like their parents. They wanted to live in the suburbs, work desk jobs, drive cars, and go to shopping malls. 
Immigrants from places like the Caribbean, South and Central America, and Africa and Asia replaced them in triple-deckers. At the same time, financial institutions began to disinvest in urban neighborhoods, and many triple-deckers deteriorated. But today, people with professional jobs and money have moved back into New England cities, and triple-deckers specifically, competing for them with today's generation of immigrants and lower-income families looking for affordable housing. And now investors and developers are capitalizing on the opportunity that presents in cities like Providence, Jamaica Plain in Boston, or Dorchester and Worcester in Massachusetts. We could start with maybe what is the traditional triple-decker layout. I'm touring a renovated triple-decker in Worcester, Massachusetts, with a developer named Taylor Bearden. The place is empty and still has that fresh paint smell. The apartment has stainless steel appliances, new cabinets and polished stone countertops. The walls that typically separate the common rooms of a triple-decker have been torn down. So we're really creating these spaces where we're taking the existing footprint of the triple-decker and converting it to something that has all the amenities you might expect in a normal home today. Like a lot of developers in New England, Taylor and his business partners have been buying up triple-deckers for a few years now. He stresses that he's not your average landlord. He wants to preserve triple-deckers, strip away decades of slapdash repairs and neglect, and position his buildings to be safe places to live for another hundred years. Finding a way to get back to the bones and fix the issues with those bones and start fresh is really how we're going to preserve the triple-decker as sort of a cultural heritage piece, but also an essential piece of housing for our neighborhoods. But doing this kind of renovation is costly. Taylor says he can sink more than $300,000 into renovating all three floors of a building. And that's on top of the money spent to buy the house. And that cost has to be made up somewhere, which means higher rents. And that prices a lot of people out, including many newer immigrants and their families. They're doing this everywhere. It's gentrification, basically. Jen Falcon was a renter in one of the triple-deckers Taylor and his partners purchased a couple years back. Jen says she and the immigrant family below her got kicked out to make way for the repairs needed to make the home suitable to what Taylor calls a middle market customer. And we used to we used to have a nice, you know, like community. You know, I used to help the kids downstairs because they didn't speak much English. I helped them with their homework. Their family cooked me some amazing food. Jen admits the building she was living in was not in perfect condition. Still, she says she's skeptical of Taylor and other developers. She says they're good marketers, but what they're really doing is putting a friendly face on gentrification that displaces immigrants and people with lower incomes. That's the sales pitch. They want people from Boston. They want to turn Worcester into West Boston, you know, making it all cool and stuff. It's easy to just point to everyone who is working in housing as a real estate developer and say, you are a gentrifier if you are trying to improve housing and the consequences increased rents. But the reality is so much more complicated than that. Taylor says gentrification is a problem and people should be talking about it. But he says people need to look at the situation realistically. He says renters, including immigrants, need affordable housing. But those options might not be available anyway if absentee landlords keep letting their buildings fall apart. Those buildings could end up condemned or torn down and then no one can live in them. We're not trying to create a situation where we displace people, even though you could look at housing development that raises rents as gentrification. But to me, the bigger picture becomes you're 
you're learning a lesson in how to stabilize these properties, and now we're trying to learn a new lesson, which is how to create these same properties that are affordable. Taylor's hoping that his next project will produce that kind of affordability. He plans to use grant money available from the city of Worcester and the state of Massachusetts to renovate triple-deckers while, at the same time, taking on less debt. That would allow him to keep rents low and make triple-decker apartments accessible to people who can't afford his current rates, possibly even immigrant families. Even as developers continue buying up triple-deckers and prices rise, it seems like the immigrant dream of owning a triple-decker home isn't going away anytime soon. Right. For now, it is definitely here to stay. We sat by here, this living room. You got your TV, the couch, and the, the flowers. Yeah, culture, flowers, TV, and our photos. Alphonse Mupenzi and I are doing a little tour of his apartment. He and his family are renting in a two-family house right now on the east side of Providence. Who's the family in the, in the photos? Yeah. That is me, raising the hand. That's my wife, Charlotte. These are my kids, Oliver, Sandra, and in the middle, there is Sonia. Alphonse is working in the laundry department at Rhode Island Hospital, and his kids are enrolled in school now. He's also still holding on to that goal of someday owning his own triple-decker. Yes, that's my dream. I'm praying for that. Yeah. If Alphonse's prayers are answered, he'll become one of the thousands of immigrants going back all the way to the 1800s who came to New England, saved up, and got a shot at home ownership with the three-family home. That was Alex Nunes and Anna Gonzalez, hosts of the podcast Mosaic from The Public's Radio. You can listen to other episodes of Mosaic on major podcasting apps or at their website, thepublicsradio.org. At the Institute of Contemporary Art in Boston, a new exhibit tells the story of migrants around the world through painting, film, and photography. The art confronts displacement and the search for a new home. WBUR's Cristela Guerra has our story. On a mangled piece of metal... Composer and sound architect Guillermo Galindo plays one of his border cantos, or songs of the border. The instrument he plays is an actual piece of the original border wall that once stood between the United States and Mexico. It hangs like a gong at the center of a giant wooden frame, resembling a twisted angel or perhaps a hanging man. The sound of each object is unique, and each of them is unique in the world. Galindo calls this piece Ángel Exterminador, or Angel Exterminator. Galindo only chooses objects found at the border to create his art. Items like shoes, gloves, or animal bones. This instrument sounds haunting, as if announcing an arrival to a new life. Nobody's going to tell you how to play it or how it's, how it's going to be executed. They, they, they have their own voices, or they tell their own stories, and they express themselves in their own way. A second instrument in the room called Zapatelo was inspired by Leonardo da Vinci's design for a mechanical hammer. Galindo turns a lever, which makes a boot and glove smack against a tire. 
At the ICA, the instruments are surrounded by photographs by Richard Mizrak. There are scenic landscapes and personal effects left behind or lost by migrants such as Bibles and clothing. The photographer brings Galindo items he finds in the desert to build this ornate orchestra. Here's Mizrak. I think one of the things that's been interesting is the fact that we have these two mediums that we've bridged, and I think it's a very powerful symbol for about the border. Instead of building walls, we bridge the border. The two artists are part of a larger exhibition at the museum called When Home Won't Let You Stay, Migration Through Contemporary Art. The United Nations estimates that one of every seven people in the world is a migrant. They may move by choice or by force. At the ICA, personal narratives, sculptures, and other mediums shed light on what chief curator Eva Respini calls a humanitarian crisis. I think it was really important for us to think about the fact that there's no one immigrant or migrant experience. It's not one thing. Perhaps in the media, it... We see a lot of narratives of victimhood. There are traumatic narratives. Those are important stories to tell. But I think we were very cognizant of also making sure that there were also stories of everyday life. The exhibit features works of 20 artists from more than a dozen countries, such as Cuba, Nigeria, Palestine, and South Korea. The galleries are laid out with pieces meant to channel home and the migrant journey. One room is dedicated entirely to the sea as a place of transit, says ICA curator Ruth Erickson. What it is is a floor sculpture in which blue articles of clothing and shoes and socks are strewn on the floor. And they're, you know, kind of thicker near the edges of the wall, and then they sort of fade out, just like water would come up to a shoreline. That space leads into Galindo and Mizrak's gallery, about the border, leading viewers from the sea to the desert. Galindo describes his instruments as neither a burial hymn nor a victory ballad. The objects that surround you are part of your ecosystem and your journey through life, so they are completely connected to to you and to everything. And uh, literally the, the part of the wall is also connected to that, even as evil as it is, and it has its voice and it has something to say too. In some way, these sounds are meant to honor these terrains, these places where so many crossed where so many risked everything for a dream. It serenades both those who made it and those who did not. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Cristela Guerra. You can find our show wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Next New England. Next is produced by Morgan Springer. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. We had help this week from Glenn Alexander at WBUR and Craig Johnson. Music this week is by Todd Merrill, Goodnight Blue Moon, Emily and Jake, Fat Astronaut, and West End Blend. I'm Shannon Dooling. The New England News Collaborative is powered by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, Connecticut Public Radio, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, New England Public Radio, WBUR, WSHU, and the Publix Radio.